Welcome, listeners, to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, the podcast dedicated to the lighter side of crime fiction. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host. On each episode, I interview an author writing cozy, traditional, or historical mysteries. You won't find mysteries with explicit sex or violence. You will find mysteries with high-quality writing, intriguing plots, and engaging characters. Thanks for listening. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Author Connie Berry returns to the corner today to chat about her new Kate Hamilton mystery, The Shadow of Memory. Welcome back, Connie. Well, thank you, Alexia. It's lovely to be with you. Now, this is your fourth Kate Hamilton mystery. Will you please catch us up with Kate and tell us what she's up to this time around? Yes. Um, Kate is back in the Long Barston village of, uh, I'm sorry, in the Suffolk village of Long Barston. She is contemplating her future, if she has one, with Detective Inspector Tom Mallory. And at the same time, she is helping her colleague, Ivor Tweedy, with uh, an upcoming auction at Netherfield Sanatorium, a former Victorian insane asylum on the Suffolk coast. There is a fine collection of antiques to auction off, including a 15th century painting attributed to the Dutch master Jan van Eyck. But when retired criminal inspector Will Parker is found dead, Kate suspects that more was going on in the halls of the sanatorium than simply priceless art. She is actually shocked to learn that Will Parker was her very good friend, Vivian Bunn's first boyfriend. They met in 1963 at a seaside holiday camp near the sanatorium, when along with three other young teenagers, they explored an abandoned house where a doctor and his wife had been found dead under bizarre circumstances. Now, when a second member of that old childhood gang is found dead, and then a third, Kate realizes that those young teenagers must have found something in that abandoned house more than they realized. But what was the deadly secret they unwittingly uncovered? When Kate makes a shocking connection between 60-year-old murders and uh, the priceless antiques that are being auctioned off, she realizes that time is running out for Vivian Bunn and anyone connected to her. Now, you recently went on a research trip to the UK, am I right? I did. We were there for three weeks in October. Okay. So, what, what was your trip like? You know, what, what did you what did you see? Where did you go? Tell us about your trip. Well, I um, we went primarily to do a little bit of groundwork for uh, a possible fifth book in the Kate series. Uh, the last three books have taken place in the county of Suffolk, and I've, I've done a lot of research there, spent a lot of time in Suffolk. But um, I, I don't want to give too much away, but it, uh, Kate, it will be moving to uh, temporarily to a different area in England. And it's an area that I have been to numerous times, but I have not spent any significant time there. So I wanted to just spend some time in that area, just kind of taking in the atmosphere. You know, traveling and enjoying a place is very different than doing research. And when you do research, you're really looking for different things. You're you're 
listening to the accents of the people, you're paying attention to the, the phrases that they use and, and how they interact. You're, you're looking at the geography, looking at the scenery, you're, you're tasting the local food. It's just a whole different experience. So I felt that I wanted to spend some significant time in that area to just kind of fill, fill up my, my research um, going forward. Of course, travel in 2022 is very different from travel in 2019. So that's how does this trip compare to your previous research trips? Well, uh, okay. So to be perfectly honest, it was, um, it was fine because we went at a little period of time when um, the UK had eased up on its COVID restrictions and then they kind of clamped down a little bit after that. So we kind of slipped in between them, which is fine. So, so we had to do some testing. Um, the, the hardest thing was being tested to go home because we wouldn't be allowed to get in the airplane to go home unless we were COVID free. And this was the problem because my husband got a bad cold and he was absolutely sure that he had gotten COVID and that I was going to get it too and that we were going to test and we were going to be positive and we would not be able to go home and we would be hold up for two weeks in some very expensive hotel in London because that's where we ended up. And so um, it was it was a little bit hard for him to enjoy the trip. Um, and then it made it a little bit harder for me to enjoy the trip, too. But as it turned out, it was just a cold and we both tested negative. We got on the plane and flew home. But um, one of the things that I noticed about the UK during that time was they had a, an interesting system. It was like a check-in. So that they had QR codes every place we went, restaurants, hotels, any of the sites, um, any place that someone would go. They had a little QR code and British people were supposed to download that code and check in saying, I've been here so that they could track your movements and supposedly, I guess, figure out, you know, where you'd been and if you started a big, you know, COVID outbreak or something. But um, I had never seen that before. I thought it was pretty interesting. That sounds like an interesting idea for a mystery, uh, tracking a criminal through their uh, COVID QR code scanning. Yeah, yes, that really would. <laughs> huh, yeah. that, that's a good thought, Alexi. You have to think about that. I see the wheels turning. Yeah. Although, you know, I, I, I do have to say, I am not at all ready to put COVID in, in a book. No, uh-uh. You know, maybe five years from now or 10 years from now if I'm still writing. But no, I, I don't want to write about COVID. It's, it's too stressful living through it. One thing that you did put in uh, the shadow of a memory the shadow of memory, uh, which uh, is relevant to things uh, going on now, is the idea of the developer's plan to turn an old psychiatric hospital or lunatic asylum, as it was called, into luxury apartments. Um, I'm saying that because I'm I'm actually right now in an old prison that was turned into luxury apartments and townhomes. So I thought that oh was my oh, goodness, interesting. Alexia. Oh, <laughs> Golly, that is amazing. 
You know, so that's so that's something that that's that's really going on with you know, people getting uh, creative about reusing um, old old facilities. Um, like they're yeah. actually in in South Carolina, they were thinking of doing the same thing to the old mental hospital in Columbia, South Carolina. So, I, what inspired that idea? Was it was it a real place, or was that something you saw? You know, a beautiful old building that you thought it would be ashamed if it was abandoned. Netherfield Sanatorium is is uh, a fictional place, but I based it on the idea of a real place called Holloway Sanatorium that, um, and and I read about it in Bill Bryson's book, The Road to Little Dribbling. He, uh, as a very young man, actually worked in as an orderly in this Hollow, um, Holloway Sanatorium for a while, and he was talking about how how unique it was and how they treated the patients very differently than they did in the traditional um, mental institutions. And that got me kind of down going down that research road of Victorian mental institutions. And as it turns out, um, there were a number of them that were built during the Victorian era. Uh, Holloway was one. Craig House in Edinburgh was another. Um, I, I can't think of the name of, of a third one, but, but they were built um, <clears throat> and they were beautiful, beautiful buildings. And the reason was that uh, there was a new theory about how you treated mental illness at that time. And it was, it was a French theory and it was called distraction therapy. And these places were fee-paying hospitals, not not for the wealthy people. The very, very wealthy people, if they had mental illness, were kept at home and they could pay for people to watch them and whatever. The very, very poor people also kept people at home because they had no other options. And if their relatives became dangerous, they would probably be taken into one of the public mental institutions, which are very, very grim. But so, so this new system was designed for kind of middle class people who could pay to have care. And it was uh, not designed for people who could never be let out. It was designed for people who whose minds were imbalanced and could be cured. And the thought was that they would be restored to sanity if they were in a beautiful location with gorgeous grounds. Um, they could indulge their hobbies. It, if they had personal servants, they could bring them with them. They could have pets. Um, they had caged songbirds in the hallways, beautiful artwork, um, the, the latest in indoor plumbing. They had cricket pitches, Turkish baths. I mean, just everything that you can imagine, like a, a magnificent country house hotel or possibly a five-star hotel. And the thought was away from their troubles in this gorgeous surrounding, they would be restored then. So with these beautiful, beautiful buildings, um, it, it was considered to be a shame not to use them because they were absolutely gorgeous. And so Holloway um, Sanatorium is turned into uh, a complex called Virginia Water. And um, if you look it up, there the flats and townhouses are absolutely stunning. I'm not sure I would want to live there. Um, and so I uh, give you a lot of kudos. <laughs> uh, so, so far, I haven't heard any 
noises that I can't explain, although I admit this um, this hundred year old brick um, and uh, cement floors echoes do tend to bounce. I'm gonna have to get some uh, soft furnishings to absorb some of the some of the sound to cut down on the echoes. Well, <laughs> which you, I, which I you're probably like hearing. Yeah, I someday I want to see photographs. <laughs> Uh, now, uh, you you mentioned the the art that was at these Victorian uh, mental uh, hospital sanatoriums, and in the shadow of memory, Kate's appraising a 15th century painting attributed to Dutch painter Jan van Eyck. Uh, who was van Eyck, and why would one of his paintings be so important? He was an amazing painter. He is often attributed. Uh, he he was part of what they called the Netherlandish painters. Um, he was mainly a portrait painter. Um, he he painted in 15th century, so so you're thinking 1400s. A lot of the painters uh, who painted painted people that kind of look like cardboard figures. Um, but he painted so realistically, and he was so detailed that if you look at his paintings with under a magnifying glass, you can see like on the men's cheeks, little bitty bits of growth of beard growth you can see the eyelashes the hairs and the eyebrows he 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 had the most magnificent technique his his paintings are absolutely gorgeous and um he was also a he's usually accredited with developing um the use of the oils in oil painting so before that um they were using a, a kind of bonder for the pigments that meant that it would dry out very quickly. So you had to only mix a little bit of the paint at one time so that if you had a color, um, you might have variations in the color, but by using the oils, and, and I'm right now forgetting the name of the oil, I'm so sorry, but um, you could mix a larger amount of the paint and it also gave the paint a luminous quality. And and he used the finest pigments like um, lapis for the blue. And uh, so his colors have remained extremely vibrant. And in the novel, the, the, the very wealthy man who founded Netherfield Sanatorium went with his wife on a trip to France and saw this painting called Christ Healing the Demoniac. Uh, from the Bible story. And um, he was so taken by the image, which was emotional and uh, riveting, that he decided to buy it and make it the centerpiece of his sanatorium. So it is always hung in the main reception room in Netherfield Sanatorium. Is, is that a real painting? No. <laughs> <laughs> but it is not unlike uh, other of his paintings, although um, I do mention that it is unusual because he usually did do portrait painting. Yeah, as you're going to say, it's real but missing and send all of our listeners off on a hunt for the missing Yeah, night. no, it's, it's real in my imagination and I can picture it, but I, can't, I couldn't paint it for you. Of course, antiques and art appraisal is something that you know well, having grown up in the antiques world. So would you tell us a little bit about appraising? I mean, how do you go about proving that an, an object or an artwork is genuine and determining its worth? And, you know, if, if someone did show up with 
Christ healing the demoniac, how would you prove it? That's not actually a real Van Eyck. Yeah, well, you know, that has changed recently, very recently, as a matter of fact. So in the past, you would um, you would look at the the technique um, and match it to other paintings. You would um, look at the uh, the background, what it was painted on, if it was painted on wood or if it was painted on canvas, which was later. Um, you would look at the attribution, what other experts, you know, who to whom they attributed that. Um, you would look at a possible signature. Van Eyck didn't sign his paintings except for a couple of them that he signed on the frame and one he signed actually on the painting itself. But other than that, he didn't. Um, but recently now, with scientific developments, that has all changed. And uh, now scientific analysis is the standard. So uh, people who do this kind of work can go in and they can examine the painting microscopically and they can look and see, for example, through the veneer of the outside painting and they can look to see what was painted underneath it. And it's uh, sometimes you get changes it's called um, impedimenti, and it's maybe changes that the artist made. Maybe he, he made a sketch at first and then decided to change the position of an arm. Or sometimes there are actually other paintings underneath the painting that you see. And they can also, with spectrograph, they can look um, and examine microscopic portions of the paint, little tiny, tiny pieces of the paint, and they can look to see if there's anything from the modern world that has um, attached itself to that paint. It is extremely difficult not to have something from the modern world embed itself as your painting. So there will be fibers, there, there might be insect parts, there, you know, just a whole host of things. And there was a very famous case recently, I think around 2000, between 2006, 2012, where um, Sotheby's auction house had bought uh, Franz Hall's painting called Portrait of a Gentleman from um, a, a, a dealer. And they sold it to an American investor for $10 million. And it, it is a gorgeous painting. And then subsequently, it was found to be a forgery. And so they, they of course, reimbursed the man who bought it. But then there was a long court case in which um, the gallery then had to eventually reimburse them for the money they paid for it. But there are all kinds of paintings now that are being re-examined. Another one was owned by the Prince of Liechtenstein, and it was supposedly by Chronic the Elder. And that is now proven to be a forgery as well. And there may be many more, tens, twenties, you know, hanging in people's homes, hanging in galleries, but unless you actually examine it microscopically, you might never know. So, given the the advances in science, you would think people wouldn't even try. Yet, art art and antiquities fraud and theft are still one of the the hottest areas of crime. I think the, the FBI has an entire unit devoted to it. And you know, I, I think those, you know some of my favorite books and movies are about like uh, the billionaire's vinegar, about wine fraud and sour grapes. Um, you know, of course, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist is legendary. So, what what do you think makes art and antiquities crimes 
appealing to criminals and fascinating to the rest of us? Yeah, I think that's a good question, Alexia, because in, in the case of painting, I, I don't know tons about, you know, forgeries and, and, and all of the artwork, but in the case of painting, the painter himself or herself has to be so skillful that, um, you're only going to get one and maybe a hundred thousand, maybe a million people that would actually have the, the skill to reproduce one of the old masters, to know enough about the brush strokes. And um, another area is called crackalure. And crackalure is the, the um, pattern of cracks in the painting that you often see on old, um, old masters paintings, because as the paint dried, it, it would form naturally over years. And it is really, really hard to reproduce that. Um, but there are some techniques that involve baking and, and so forth that can come close. But I think really in, in other areas, there are two things. One is the potential for huge, huge profits. And the second is, um, greed on the part of a person to want to own something and and maybe gullibility so greed and gullibility that people are always ready to think i you know something is you know they're waiting for me and i'm the only one who knows about it and so i'm just going to snatch that thing up but there there are collectors who know that they're buying um either stolen or uh you know art that that shouldn't be sold um but they don't care because they don't want people to know that they have it necessarily they just want to possess it so so there's that kind of lust for possessing something of great value and great beauty and you, you think it's mainly in the case of of, of forgers you think ego has something to do with it like they're thinking hey i can get away and fool all these experts with their with their fancy equipment and their uh their frack patterns and you know they'll never catch me <laughs> <laughs> you know i think that may be changing because now with this this new technology um you know forgers are going to realize that you know if if they shoot too high that they're probably going to be found out but there there was a case of a forger um and uh i think he might have been french and i'm Again, I don't remember his name, but he's very famous because he forged uh, a lot of Vermeers and um, a lot of different artists. So he was able to paint in many different styles and he was caught, but he was actually he, he became a hero because he sold a forged painting to one of the high Nazi officials. I think it might have been Goebbels. And people were really happy with that because they liked the thought that that he was fooled. So um, he he developed quite a reputation, and actually he was such a wonderful artist that he could have produced paintings of his own. But the thing is, like the forger in in my story, um, taste and painting changed. So the old masters, for example, were. Um, Jan van Eyck was into represent, representative painting, where you you painted something so accurately, it was almost like a photograph. Well, that was no longer wanted anymore. 
So, um, you know, his, his work wouldn't have been valuable. Wouldn't wouldn't have brought the price that a Vermeer would bring. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and, and you you mentioned that uh, in the shadow of memory, this uh, Van Eyck is tied to uh, events that are, are decades old, you know, six, 60 years previous, something yeah. happened that's been connected to this, to your, your present day story. So yeah. what is it about old secrets that, uh, or, or things people do as teens or children that uh, sort of um, makes them, I guess, uh, triggers for, for modern day uh, crimes or incidents? I, I wish I could answer that question. All I know is that secrets of the past have always fascinated me. And I've always been, and, and maybe it's because I grew up with objects of the past. So an antique, uh, a fine antique is an object that existed in the past, but it has remained and it has come through to the present. So it is a little bit like having a part of the past in your home and that object has a history um part of it may be unknown but one of the things that my mother did when um she she was a wonderful researcher and she would uh do a lot of research into the objects that they sold and she would document everything and put it along with that object and she said that that way people weren't just buying an object they were buying a piece of history but it's the uncovering of secrets that I think mystery lovers love anyway. But the uncovering of a secret long hidden in the past has always just held a fascination for me. I had a lot of um, secrets from the past in, in my own family on my father's side. And because of research and genealogy, I've, I've actually discovered some of them. I think my, my grandmother would be horrified to know what I found out about her. But um it, that just fires my imagination, and I think it does for a lot of people. And uh, it was a, you've you've got a, a great opening line uh, in this book. Uh, the last place one expects to find a dead body is a graveyard, above ground. I mean, how did you, how did you settle on that, and how do you know when you've got a great opening line? I I don't know. Um, I had a lot of different opening lines for that story. Sometimes I come up with an opening line. You know, I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this too, Alexia, but sometimes it doesn't change, but, but this time it changed quite a bit. And, you know, you, you just want to kind of draw people in and, um, you know, again, something very unexpected, you know, something that should not be there. There's, there is a disconnect. Okay, it's a graveyard, but then there's a body above ground. So um, I'm glad you liked it. Open, opening lines are one of the hardest things for me, I admit. So I, so I did like it. Yeah. And so with, with all these, these secrets and, and unexpected things, what's, what's next for, for Kate and for you? you? You kind of hinted at it. Can you give us a, a, a bigger hint? Yeah, well, I am working on a, a potential fifth book in the Kate series. And I, I am also developing um, another potential series. It will be um, set in Victorian England. And in a, so in a, in a got, mental asylum? 
no, no, that this is going to be in the rural county of Hampshire. So uh, uh, historical uh, mystery still or different genre? Yes, historical mystery. Okay, so that's that's exciting. So while folks are waiting for maybe Kate Book 5 and possible historical mystery, where can they buy a copy of The Shadow of Memory in the meantime? The Shadow of Memory releases on May 10th. So that's just about, I think it's a little bit under two weeks now. And they can buy it actually any place that books are sold. I I always recommend that people shop at their local bookstores. Local bookstores are amazing and wonderful. And so try there first. There's also some conglomerations of independent bookstores that come together to sell books online. And the name is escaping me right now. Maybe you know, Alexia. Oh, uh, bookshop.org. Yeah, bookshop.org. Thank you. And, And of course, you know, all the other places, Amazon, Target, Barnes and Noble, all those places. I mean, any independent or local bookstores you'd like to uh, recommend or give a shout out to? Because, hey, folks, remember, you can order online from local bookstores. That, they will ship that to you. is true. So, I, yes, we have two wonderful independent bookstores in Columbus, Ohio, and one is called the Book Loft. It is it is one of the um, destinations when people come to visit. It's in German Village, thebookloft.com. And the other one is called Gramercy Books, G-R-A-M-E-R-C-Y. And that is a new bookstore, beautiful bookstore in Bexley, Ohio. So gramercybooks.com. And where can readers connect with you? Um, online, on your blog? Social media. Yeah, I am on Facebook. Um, I have I have uh, Connie Berry author on Facebook. I also have a website, which is ConnieBerry.com. And on that website, you can opt into my monthly newsletter, which is called The Plot Thickens. I send it out around the 20th of every month. And um, you can also opt out and, and I'll never know. Well, thank you very much for opting in to join me in the corner again. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alexia. It's always wonderful to talk with you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today was Connie Berry, author of the Kate Hamilton Mysteries, chatting about the shadow of memory, the fourth in the series. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Tune in next time for another chat with an author writing on the lighter side of crime. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.